Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning we are expectant to hear a word from you. Lord, I pray that this morning you would help us to quiet the noise of the world, the distractions, the um, even the noise of our own hearts. Lord, that you would give us a special attention that we can give to your spirit. Lord, and I pray for Pastor Cameron and the preparation and the prayer and the spirit leading. Lord, I pray that you would give him uh, the words to say and the wisdom to uh, omit the words that he's not supposed to say this morning. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be active through the preaching of your word. Lord, I ask that you would build us up, that you would give us a vision to behold you and to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Conduit. How are you? Good, good. It's good to see you this morning. I've been uh, talking with uh, Pastor Luke, and we'll just kind of feel in this a little bit that I, um, I almost feel like it's my first Sunday preaching here again, even though I've been preaching here for like almost 10 years. Um, but we haven't really, we haven't, between stories of conduit and Christmas services and all that, it's been like over a month since we have uh, done any type of like traditional preaching. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm eager to get back there, uh, eager to uh, jump back into the Roman series here in a few weeks um, and to pick up where we left off. If you remember, as Pastor Luke said, that we had been studying in the book of Romans, and I think we're about... Uh, we're a little bit less than halfway through it, and so we're going to jump back in here in a few uh, in a few weeks. But um, sometime at the beginning of the year, every year, uh, I think it's important for us, and I like to uh, take this kind of uh, a necessary and intentional step uh, to return to or be reminded of. Uh, the kind of the the center of our life as a worshiping community, and to get oriented, make sure that we're orienting ourselves towards the what is the proverbial north star for our communal life together. Why why exactly we exist as a community? Why why we are here? Why we worship? And while we come and now while we we try to do that, Pastor Luke and myself, we, we, we do take, make an intentional effort in every sermon that we bring or every message that we have or every Sunday that we're here, we do try to make an, an intentional effort to remind, to remind you, to remind ourselves, to be reminded as a community of why, uh, of why we are here and why we exist and what it is that we're all here for. Um, you know, it's not, uh, it, it is, it always, it, it always is important to return back to that place once again and to say, all right, just in case any of us forgot, you know, I know like the beginning of the year, you get through the holidays and the beginning of the year sometimes can be like a fog. Like what day is it? What year is it? Where am I? Is it, have, are we, did we really flip the calendar? Did we really start over? And is anything significantly different about my life or about my direction this year than it has been in the past? And I would say in some ways, 
Like, yeah, we use the opportunity for a new year and a new start to maybe make some uh, resolutions to stamp, step back down onto our core values and say, okay, this is the direction that my life or my family is traveling this year, but um, there are some things that never change. And so uh, we want to return to it always. And if I, um, if, I preached, if I preached a sermon that spoke of our unapologetic and forever commitment to glorifying the name of Jesus and following him in all we do, if I preached that sermon every single week, I am confident that I would run across the finish line of this race that has been marked out for me with Jesus himself saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, and so in, in, case that there was, if, in case there was any confusion about that, in case there was any confusion about what we are about here at Conduit, what we desire to be about as a community of people gathered together, um, hopefully this begins to bring some clarity to any confusion that we might have or anything that we might have forgotten about in the past 11 or 12 months. And that is we are unapologetically, 100%, unapologetically and forever about glorifying the name of Jesus and following him in all that we do. If you're new to Conduit this morning, if you're old to Conduit, this morning. Hear that really, really, really loud and clear. Our desire and our heart and our direction is to be about Jesus in every decision that we make, in every message that we preach, in every song that we sing, in every small group that we have, in every Sunday school class that we have, in every Bible study that we host, every time that the food truck goes out, any community event that we have, we want to be all about Jesus. And if people leave our presence as a community of faith, thinking that, wow, that was all about Conduit. Conduit is a great place. Then we have failed. We have failed. Because, because our, our goal, our goal is not to build a name for ourselves. It's not to make a name for ourselves, either as a church or as individuals. Our, our goal is to make the name of Jesus great. To, to see him be lifted up, right? Because when, when Jesus Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men, women, and children to himself, right? It is, it is in the lifting up and glorifying of the name of Jesus Christ that people's lives are transformed. You're not transformed through... Um, through the ministry of your pastor. You're not transformed by the person that's sitting next to you, right? You're not transformed by reading the greatest book or listening to the greatest podcast. Like we are, we are transformed through the ministry of Jesus Christ by faith in the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, by the sanctifying power of the, in the truth of God's word, in the context of a community of faith of others who are walking with Jesus seeking to follow him and be obedient to his commands. That is how we are transformed, and that is what we want to all be about. Now, understand this. Um, listen, I, I know, I know the flaws of Conduit Ministries. 
better than any of you. I, I know where we miss the mark in greater detail. And I say this with no, no amount of pride, right? It's, it's, it's not a fun thing to know, okay? <laughs> right? I'm not, I'm not saying na-na-na-na-boo-boo, right? But listen, <laughs> I, know, I know the ways and the times and the opportunities that we miss the mark in that better than anyone right? It is the thing of my nightmares, right? It is the thing that keeps me up at night, okay? So what I am not saying is that what you will see in the life of the community here is always 100% perfection towards what we're talking about tonight. But what I am saying is that as a people, we also desire to have a sufficient amount of humility and surrender to the Holy Spirit to say in every opportunity that we have, Lord, would you make us more faithful to the task of glorifying the name of Jesus? Not thank you for perfecting us more than all of the other churches, because that's garbage, right? But Lord, would you make us in humility more faithful to the task to glorify the name of Jesus and to serve him faithfully so that those whom you have entrusted to us might have an incarnational experience with the Son of God. That's our desire, okay? Um, when we say things like we are all about Jesus or we're unapologetically about glorifying and magnifying the name of Jesus and following him in all that we do, um, there, there is a moment here, there is a qualification or I think a, a, a piece of caution that we must also kind of wrestle with. And this is a matter of our, this is a matter of personal and communal spiritual humility, right? Uh, we have to be careful about this when we say we are all about Jesus. Um, because we are, we are not, we are not about Jesus, the Jesus that we make in our own image. We're not about the Jesus that we make with our own, in our own image. Meaning, meaning we are not about glorifying the, the Jesus that agrees with everything that we agree with and everything that we think. It's a very, it's a very, you should, you should be walking um, on proverbial eggshells or very, very carefully when you come to the conclusion that Jesus agrees perfectly with everything that you believe. Or that if Jesus was here, he would believe exactly like you, he would act exactly like you, he would think exactly like you, he would go to the same places that you go, he would hang out with the same people that you hang out with, he would say the things that you say, he would think the things that you think. When we, when, when we come to a place of believing or saying like, yeah, I, I, Jesus and I were like lockstep together, right? Of course, we, we, we want to be following Jesus as faithfully as his grace enables us and we are capable of, but when we come to a place of saying, yeah, you just need to, like, making Jesus in our own image, we, 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 end, up, we end up in a kind of a dangerous place. Um, because the, 
Jesus of Scripture constantly, consistently, and with just about every person he interacted with had to destroy their expectations of who he was and what he came to do and the ministry which he came to bring. He had to destroy their expectations so so that he could actually show who he was and what he came to do. How he came to treat people. What he came to say. How he came to act. How he came to live and how he came to die. Because everyone wants to follow Jesus in power. Very few people want to follow Jesus in his death. Because when when Jesus calls us to come and follow him, what does he call us to? He, He calls us to come and die, right? Come, come and pick up this cross. Not, not, not some feel-good, nostalgic, religious symbol for you and I, but an instrument of death to them. And so even the words of Jesus, come and pick up this, carry your cross and follow me. To follow me, Jesus says, essentially, is to follow me towards death. Death and surrender to yourself. Death to your own life. Death to your own dreams, death to your own goals and plans and vision, so that you might rise to new life in the life that I have given to you through faith in my son. And so we do have to ask the question, <laughs> like, all right, we, we intend to follow the Jesus that has been made in our own image, the Jesus that is full of power and gives us only our best life, or the Jesus that actually sometimes calls us to come and die to ourselves, to lay down everything, to give up everything for for his cause and his sake in our lives. It It is the discipleship of surrender rather than the discipleship of a linear path to personal prosperity. Jesus had a conversation with probably the closest person on earth to him about this. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record this conversation. John doesn't record it, but he records similar ones. Where Jesus came to his disciples in Matthew chapter, we'll we'll read out of Matthew chapter 13, um, where, where, where Jesus kind of starts a conversation with the understanding and the knowledge of his awareness of people making him to be in their own image, in their own idea, with their own plans for him. Jesus knew that this was happening. And so in, in, um, in, in the classic way of Jesus, create a teaching moment by asking some questions. He asked uh, Peter and the disciples around him this question. Peter was the one that answered. Don't look at Matthew chapter 13 because that is not the correct reference. 
Look at Matthew chapter 16, and you'll find the right one. Yeah, Matthew chapter 16. Sorry, whoever's up there on the computer, my bad. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Just going to read three short verses here. It kind of illustrates this point for us, right? That, that people had an idea of who Jesus had come to be. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's asking them, hey, um, are people talking about me? What are they saying about me? This is a little bit into his ministry, right? They had heard his teaching. They had seen some of his miracles. They had seen the way that he had um, interacted with the religious leaders of the day, Pharisees, Sadducees, high priests. They, they, were, they were aware of the stirring about around Jesus, right? And so he was like, hey, what's the, um, um, what's the word the kids use these days? What's the T? <laughs> Kathy, how do you know that? <laughs> uh, what's the T? I don't even know what that means. Like, uh, uh, what are they saying? What are they saying about me? And so what does Peter say? He says, well, um, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah. Uh, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so there was this idea, there was not just the idea, there was lots of ideas about who Jesus was and what he had came to do and what his ministry among them would be because all of these people had, I would say, similar types of ministries, but they were all very different. They, they, they were all different. And, and, and so, you know, I think Jesus, he's, I think he's going to be like Elijah call down fire, burn up the false, um, the false priests, right? Like, come with power. Or like John the Baptist, the weird guy out in the wilderness calling people to repent, right? Some other prophet, maybe. And then Jesus asks this question after Peter's response. Okay, well, uh, that's what everyone else is saying. Who do you say that I am? I think the, the implication here is that Jesus knows that Peter has been witness to the things and ministry of Jesus' life. Based on what you have seen, Peter, who do you say that I am? This is the one time that Peter got it right. Okay? This is like the one time where he doesn't, doesn't just absolutely stick his entire sandal in his mouth. Okay? And he says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now, it's impossible, nearly impossible for us today um, 
who speak essentially 21st century English, who use words like tea and aren't speak, talking about a drink, right? Um, to, under, to always understand the, the depth of that statement that Peter proclaims in that moment. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. An extraordinarily profound both confession and proclamation of who he knew Jesus to be. The long-promised, the long-awaited Messiah. The one who would come to save his people from their sins, to set them free from the yoke of bondage, to bring them into the kingdom of God promised to the ancestors of Abraham. And not only was he the one to do this himself, but he wasn't just some, guy, some, some nice guy with high ethical or moral standards who was just like firing on all eight cylinders all the time, super good guy, that Jesus, right? But that he was the son of the living God, that he was God of God, that he was in himself the incarnation of the Father on earth. A profound statement and confession that despite even his mistakes, Peter's mistakes, later in life, earlier in life, in all of his ministry, reoriented Peter's life and transformed the way that he lived. Because, because he, he, in that moment, was able to confess with his mouth as he recognized in his spirit who Jesus actually was. That all others around him or a good portion of those around him were creating these expectations or ideas of who Jesus was. Oh, maybe he's like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And there was this sense that the crowd, right, that where these confessions were coming from just was not grasping onto who Jesus actually was. Was not, was not walking in the intimacy of true relationship with him. Well, when Peter was able to see through the expectations of the world for Jesus, to see who Jesus actually was, confess it with his mouth, proclaim it with every inch of his being, it was at that moment in Peter's life that everything turned, right? Because then Jesus says to him, you are right, Peter. No one has revealed this to you except my father. And now I declare your name will be Peter and on this rock I will build my church. It's an interesting little play on words here that Jesus uses because the word Peter means rock, okay? And so you might, you, you, we might think that Peter walks away with this like, oh, okay, it is on me that Jesus will build his church. I mean, that might be comforting to um, those of us who have a tendency to put our foot in our mouth all the time, like Peter does, right? But, um, but we, we should think a little bit wiser than that, right? Because, because the, the indication here is not that Jesus is going to build his church upon a man, Peter, 
but that Christ is going to build his church upon the proclamation of the man who says that Jesus Christ is Lord. That the church is built on the confession of who Jesus is, not on the one who speaks it from their mouth. Any more than the church is built upon a pastor or a staff or an elder team or whoever and is built solely and completely upon the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will unapologetically glorify the name of Jesus and follow him with every fiber of our being. That is who we are. That is what we are about. So the important question, the applicable question here, similar to the question that Jesus asked Peter after his, after the in this conversation, hey, Peter, well, okay, I know what they say, but what, what do you say? What do you see? And what does it make you believe about me? The question maybe remains for us the same as it did for Peter, is who do you, sitting in this room, 120 Delaware Avenue, nice cold day, Bill's game on at 6.30, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? I would dare say that there is not a more important question. That there, there is not a more important question. Who do you say that he is? And, and, and do you have, do you possess the both intellectual and spiritual maturity to ask Jesus himself if you have been making him to be in your own image a lot rather than allowing him to be who he actually is. Because making Jesus in our own image does not require us to change. It does not require us to consider how Jesus may like to sanctify and burn away the dark recesses of our souls so that we might come into the fullness of intimacy and relationship with him and the Father? Because if Jesus and I are, are so alike, then why would I need to change, right? But, but like we said before, if I find myself saying, well, I know that everything that I believe Jesus believes, everything that I say Jesus would say, everyone that I am in relationship with Jesus would be in relationship with, everything that I am doing Jesus would do it exactly the same. You have likely created a Jesus that looks exactly like you. And I don't, like, listen, I don't want a Jesus that looks exactly like me. I want a Jesus that looks exactly like Jesus. Like him. And that requires, that is going to require that something here or something here or something here in my life changes almost always almost always 
you will, you will, you will arrive spiritually in heaven, right? When you see Jesus face to face, when he comes to make all things new. Um, but interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't leave us to guess about who he actually is and what he actually came to do. And so we don't actually have to be afraid that we are inadvertently or without any, without any guidance. We don't have to wonder whether or not we are creating a Jesus in our own image because because Jesus, Jesus actually came and said, hey, um, this, okay, who do you say, do you want to know what I'm all about? I'm happy to tell you what I'm all about. I, I, I am here to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, there's virtually, there's virtually whole gospels built upon Jesus declaring, describing what the kingdom of God is like. But there are also some very specific places where Jesus gives us, or the word, the word of God gives us, both Jesus and Paul, gives us some like, all right, you want to know who Jesus is? Um, Jesus is like, this is, what, this is who I am. This is what I've came to, um, come to do. Paul, this is who Jesus is. This is where he sits on the proverbial scale of spiritual authority and supremacy in the world and in the cosmos, okay? They, they, they don't leave it up for imagination, right? It's important for us to, I think, hear these words, okay? Um, the first place that we're going to look about this is uh, a place uh, early in the Gospel of Luke, okay? I'm going to get this reference correct, right? It's Luke chapter 4. And a really quick background to this. Um, in Luke's gospel, Jesus, the first like two or three chapters is like the background, the genealogy, um, nativity story, Christmas, right? Jesus goes into the wilderness in, or he's baptized, then he goes into the wilderness in Luke chapter four. He's tempted by the enemy, um, when, he, when, the, when the temptation in his period of solitude and fasting is over for 40 days, he comes out of the wilderness. It seems as though that, like, that period of temptation and fasting was a, uh, was, was a period of consecration for Jesus, where he set himself apart to be prepared for the ministry that would go forward. Because then in the beginning of, or in the middle of chapter 4, right, Jesus... Um, uh, Jesus kind of just like steps on the stage and, and is like, uh, here I am, uh, here's what I'm all about, and uh, take it or leave it. Which is essentially what Jesus says to us, right? Right? You f follow the real me or follow a Jesus of your own making, but here's who I actually am. Take it or leave it. And what's interesting is he walks, it says in um, uh, Luke chapter 4, the, a little bit of uh, a little bit of background. Jesus returned. This is fourteen, uh, Luke four fourteen. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. 
He taught, listen, he taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So this guy rising in fame and power, teaching in the, teaching in the, the religious places of Judaism, he's teaching in their synagogues. People wondering, who is this guy? Teaches with such great authority. We see people say in other um, gospels here. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue there as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it. Jesus is like, oh, thank you, Isaiah. Perfect. This is a perfect scroll for me to read. Unrolling it, it says he found the place where it was written. <laughs> it's almost like Jesus is like, oh, Isaiah, perfect. Give me that. Just got to go to Isaiah 61 because I got someone to read for, something to read for you. Because the prophet Isaiah, back in the history of the Israelite people, was considered the messianic prophet, the one that spoke about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Son of God. And so, by no coincidence, was Jesus handed the scroll of Isaiah. Hey, hey buddy, it's your turn to read. Um, stand up and read from this scroll. Does he open it up to Isaiah 61 and reads this? From Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And if he just like put the scroll, rolled the scroll back up, handed it back to the guy, sat down and kept his mouth shut, they might be led to believe that, oh, very good, very good reading of Isaiah 61, Jesus guy. Good, good job. You read well. You read well. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of the every, everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them this, uh, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, in front of all of the religious leaders, in the middle of the synagogue, after reading Isaiah 61, which had historically and forever been about the coming of the Messiah and what the Messiah would come to do and who he would be and what he would be about and what he wouldn't be about, right? Hey, job description for the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus opens it, reads it, sets it back down and says, that's me. Everything that you've been waiting for, the person that you've been praying for, the one that you have been waiting for, you all have been looking and waiting for the Messiah. I am telling you right now, Isaiah testified to it then, and I am standing in your presence now to tell you that is talking about me. And so Jesus himself, in front of all of the people, especially the, the, the religious people, were like, do you want to know who I am and what the Messiah is all about? Well, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for those captive, 
recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, of course, is not the only place where... And, and listen, we could, I, I could preach 52 sermons all in 2024 about all the things that Jesus said about himself, all right? I'm not saying that this is a comprehensive list of all... Don't, don't email me and say, why didn't you talk about this? Um, if you want to be here, past the Bills game, we can talk about it, right? But what I'm saying is here is like, we are not without... We are not without places in Scripture where Jesus himself was like, set aside your expectations of who you want me to be and hear for yourself from my own lips and from the words of Scripture itself who I actually am. And folks, it is in that moment where we must choose whether to align ourselves with the proclamation of Jesus himself about who he is or continue to follow a Jesus made in our own image that loves the people that look like us, talk like us, act like us, believe like us, think like us, live next to us, but couldn't give a rip about anyone who was off to the side. Because every pl- virtually every place in scripture, where the religious people pushed people to the margins, that's where Jesus went. That's where Jesus went. That's where he spent his time. That's who he was in communion with. That's who he was in ministry to. Even if you just look at Isaiah chapter 61, the words of Jesus here, you can come up with all your spiritual gymnastics to say, well, um, po- the poor is really a spiritual metaphor for those who were poor in spirit because of their sin, and uh, the oppressed were those who were kind of oppressed by their sin, but not really like socially poor or economically poor or socially or economically oppressed or any, anything that we think of when we think of oppression or poverty or anything like that. It's all a spiritual metaphor. Like, and I would say that the Gospels show us that that is completely false. I would say that the Gospels show us an actual demonstrated response of Jesus' life and ministry that every time the world built a wall, Jesus put another seat at the table. That every time that every time a group of people tried to close the door on someone else because they were too sinful or too dirty or they lived over here or they believed this, Jesus kicked the door down. Listen, we build walls. Jesus builds tables. John chapter 3. We're going to go from Luke 4 to John 3, right? Still staying in the Gospels. Self-proclamation of who Jesus is, right? Jesus speaking here to one of the teachers of the law 
a man named Nicodemus who came to him late at night to ask him some questions, right? Presumably because he couldn't ask him these honest questions in the company of the other religious people in the, you know, the world because what would they think if I was talking to that Jesus guy? He's weird and he eats with sinners. He touches those who have leprosy. He is unclean. He heals people on the Sabbath. Like, hmm, how dare he? And so Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, comes to Jesus at night and he's like, hey, um, uh, teacher, what must I do to be born again? And Jesus, maybe a little snarkily, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of reading in the tone of Jesus' words. I want to believe it's snarky, but maybe that's a Jesus in my own image. Um, I want to believe it's snarky, but Jesus is like, you're the teacher of, Jerusalem, or of all Jerusalem and you don't know these things? You come to me to ask me what it means to be born again? You're the one that are teaching people, you're teaching our people, and you don't know what this is? And they have a little conversation here, right? You must be born of water and the Spirit. Well, how can I be born if I born again, if I was only born once? You, you get the idea, right? And then we come up to, to, to uh, chapter 3, verse 16, and we have, you know, again, okay, okay, here, Bill's analogy. You're going to probably see it on a piece of poster board in the end zone of the Bill's game today. John three sixteen, right? Great. Love it. Love it. Right? Love it. Um, because it is a self-proclamation of who, who Jesus came to be and what he came to do, right? For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But wait, there's more. Right? Because, because John 3.16 is not disconnected by anything either theologically or literarily in the text from John 3, 17, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, this is, this is Jesus declaring the, one of the purposes for which the Father has sent him into the world. This is the Jesus as he actually is, not the Jesus of our own image. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That, that, the, that, that one of the self-proclaimed, self-confessed purposes of Jesus coming into the world was on a mission from the Father itself to destroy the spirit of condemnation that the world brings upon, that the world brings upon people, and to save them not just from their own sins, right, but to save them in a certain way that lays condemnation and shame aside. Because we, we, myself, you, us, the world, people, we have this tremendous, tremendous, I'm not going to call it a gift, <laughs> curse, I'm going to call it, right? 
to try and condemn and shame ourselves and others into the saving grace of Jesus. It is the most backwards and upside down from the actual ministry of Jesus that there could possibly be. To use, to use condemnation and to use shame in order to draw people into the grace of God. What? Like, it, we needed to do like a flip it and reverse it there, right? <laughs> you don't know where that came from, right? <laughs> um, is that it is the grace of God, right? It is the grace, it is not condemnation and shame from the world that brings us into the grace of God. It is the grace of God that eliminates the condemnation and shame that the world describes upon or prescribes upon us or that you and I walk around carrying all the time. God doesn't love me because of who I am. God is angry with me because of what I've done. I am not faithful enough. I am not good enough, right? I need to work harder. I need to be more faithful. I need to say more right things and avoid more wrong things. And uh, because of what I've done in the past, I don't know, like I, I'm surprised that the roof isn't caving in on me right now because... So many people have told me, hey, look, just get your life in order and just stop doing all the bad things and start some, doing some of the good things and then come to church and, um, and, and, and we'll, make you, we'll clean you up, right? We'll clean, you, we'll clean you up. We'll make you look like us and talk like us and be like us and act like us. Jeez, don't do that. Because listen, the very work of God, even right from the very beginning, was to take every bit of shame and condemnation that we feel from our sin, that we experience from one another, that we experience from the world, that we experience internally to ourselves, and make provision through his son, Jesus Christ, to cover over all of our shame, to eliminate any condemnation that we're experiencing, so that we can fully embrace the love of God rather than the condemnation of the world. This goes all the way back into the Genesis account where Adam and Eve, in the midst of having eaten of the apple and have sinned, it said that they, that they, they took a bite of the apple, they recognized then, right, that they were what? Naked and they felt what? Shame. And what did they do when they felt shame? They ran and hid. And the word to them at that time was like, hey, come out of the bushes, clean yourself up, get it figured out, go back to God, right? Go back to God and it will be okay. But the Genesis account is very clear. It's not Adam and Eve that went looking for God in the midst of their shame. It's God that came looking for them. God came looking for them, saw them in their shame. Why did you hide from me? This is not who we are. This is not what we do. This is not the, 
Shame is not the basis of our relationship. Fear is not the basis of our relationship. Why did you hide? Well, we saw that we were naked and we were afraid, so we hid. Who told you that? Who told you to hide from me? Who told you to run away? Run to me. Don't hide from me. Run to me. And so in an act of extraordinary compassion, in a foreshadowing of what the Father had done in the Son on the cross, what does the Father do in that moment for Adam and Eve? He creates garments, right? It says, not to cover their bodies, but to what? He makes garments of animal skin. Unless God the Father had a tannery around the corner, right? There's an, there's an implication that something had to die in order for those clothes or those coverings to be made. Something died so that the Father could, took, could take what had died and cover up not the nakedness, but the shame. So the very... The, woven into the very fabric of the creation story all the way through the biblical narrative, landing at Jesus Christ himself is this reality, is that Jesus comes to take away your shame. That Jesus does not come to leverage condemnation on you for what you have done, for what you haven't done, for what you have said, or for who you are. Jesus comes so that you may be saved and come away from a spirit of condemnation and shame. Finally, one more, one more scripture in this vein that we're going to look at. Who is, the, who is Jesus? Who is the Jesus of Scripture, not the Jesus of our own image. One of the places in where the apostle, in uh, which the apostle Paul speaks of who Jesus is, Ephesians chapter one. Paul is praying for the Ephesians here, one of the churches in which he planted. Starting in verse um, 18 in Ephesians chapter 1, he said, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Listen, listen, this is Paul's proclamation of who God has made Jesus to be. All right? Which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, 
but also in the one to come. And God placed all things. You know what the, um, the Greek word for all means? All. Um, all things, right? Means all things, meaning like there's, there's nothing that escapes the supremacy of Jesus. Okay? Just as a clarifying, you know, write that down in the margin of your Bible, right? All means all. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That now, in this very moment, as I speak these words, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in the place of authority, exercising his spiritual dominion, his spiritual authority over all things that have been made, will be made, could be made, are created. All power and dominion is his in heaven and on earth and in the church forever and ever. Amen. He is the king of the world. He is the king of the church. All authority is his forever. Jesus self-proclaimed his ministry to the poor. Jesus self-proclaimed his ministry to eliminate shame through the salvation of his body. Paul proclaimed the supremacy of Jesus over everything and everyone and every time and every place forever and ever. If we read more in, if we read more in the scripture, we could read about how um, Jesus was the firstborn of all the creation, right? That, uh, that he is fully God, that he is the image of the invisible God, right? We could, like I said, we could read for days and hours about everything that the scripture proclaims Jesus to be, both by his own words and through the witness of the rest of scripture. But here, here's the point, okay? Um, or here's one of the points, is that this, is that we, as a church, as a community, as pastors, right, as ministry leaders, as not even just that, as brothers and sisters, if you're sitting next to someone, right? Now listen, we, we desire that all of our hearts would be aligned towards the same goal, in the same direction, in the same vein, all the time as a foundational and fundamental part of who we are here as the body, is that we want to lead you to Jesus so that he can transform your life. That's our number one goal. And I shouldn't even say it like that, because to say the number one goal would to assume that there would be a number two goal. There isn't a number two goal. There isn't, that's plan A, there is no plan B. Right? Plan A is to take the person next to me and the person next to me, like, all right, we're getting close to Jesus today. We're getting close to Jesus today. We're getting close to Jesus today because it is in the presence of Jesus that our lives are transformed. A few areas that Jesus will transform, okay? Not all the areas, again, some of the areas. 
When we talk about transformation, what does that mean? Um, number one, Jesus will transform the things that we love and that we passionately pursue. Sometimes I talk about this in the, like, the language of that Jesus transforms our affections, the things that we desire, the things that we strive after, the things that we run after, the things that we place, that we, that we sprint after, that we, we, we put effort after. What are the things that you love? What are the things that you are pursuing? What are the things that you are desiring? What are the things that you are striving for? When Jesus begins to transform our hearts, both immediately or progressively in the, pa- in, the, in, like, in the process of our sanctification, you will find or you should find that the things that we desire and the things that we pursue are also transformed. I no longer want this. This is no longer important to me. I'm no longer, I'm no longer pouring um, 60 hours of my week into this. I'm no, I'm, no longer, I'm no longer seeking that dream or that vision. I'm no longer totally oriented all of my, all of my physical resources towards attaining that goal or that dream because the Lord has changed my affections. He has changed and is transforming the things that I love and the things that I desire and the things that I want. And this includes our desire to pursue him. Now we will know that the Lord is transforming our hearts when we have a building hunger to pursue him more. That our that our lives are no longer marked by a casual patty cake with the Lord on one day a week for a few hours, but now deep down inside of who we are, there is a hunger that cannot be satisfied by anything of this world, and the only thing that satisfies it is the bread of life that comes from heaven. We know we're being transformed when the things that we are pursuing begin to change. And one of those things is him. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Another thing that begins to be transformed, right? When we get closer and closer to Jesus, he transforms our affections, right? As we get closer and closer to Jesus, now he begins to transform our thoughts. He transforms our minds, right? We begin to see our thoughts shift from whatever I want, whatever I desire, whatever I want to think about, whatever's important to me, to now, as Paul says it in Philippians chapter 4, Verse 8, this is um, fantastic and extraordinarily convicting, okay? Extraordinarily convicting. Because what I'm going to be honest with you, what I find is one of the places where I'm most slow to allow Jesus to transform me is in my thoughts. Because I'm holding on to things of the flesh. I'm holding on to thoughts. I'm holding on to words. I'm holding on to opinions and preferences. I'm holding on to things that are of me. And so you know why I I know that that's true? Because when I read something like Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, I'm like, I I feel the weight 
of the inconsistency between the call of God's word and the things that are filled up in my mind. And so, and so I know that that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit levering down on me, pressing onto me, desiring transformation, working towards transformation, because you come to Philippians 4, 8, and Paul is like, uh, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, those are the things we should be thinking about. Think about such things. Whatever makes you angry, whatever, whatever keeps you distracted from the reality of your life, whatever that person said to you or did to you, whatever pain you're holding on to from the past, think about those things. Don't worry. When you fill your mind with all of those things, the rest of your life would will go just fine. Right? I mean, it, 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 I don't want to say it like this, and I trust you know my heart, but like it's almost so simple that it's stupid. And it's something that we say to our kids sometimes, right? Is that garbage in, what? Garbage out, Right? Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is noble, whatever is trustworthy, think about such things. Whatever is negative, whatever is shameful, whatever is condemning, whatever is depressing, whatever is X, Y, or Z, think about such things. And then the fruit is born from that. Jesus desires to transform not just our spiritual condition, but also our thoughts because we are holistic and connected beings. He says in Romans, or Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which we'll study here again in just a few weeks, right? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Number three, we're going to kind of end here. We're landing the plane, I promise. Jesus will, how do I know when I'm being transformed? How do I know when I'm moving closer to Jesus and the real Jesus is beginning to transform me? Is that Jesus will transform our heart towards other people. Jesus begins to transform our heart towards other people. This, of course, is the greatest commandment, is it not? The teachers of the law, they come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Hey, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That he, these two things cannot be separated, right? That Jesus weaves them together with one another. That the way in which we love God is intimately connected with the way in which we love others, and they cannot be ripped apart. We cannot claim to love God and hate others at the same time. Right? Those, th those two things are, are inconsistent with one another and they create a discontinuity of our souls. And so when 
Jesus is transforming us. He's also transforming the way in which we, our heart towards others. That, that our love for other people is now informed not by their conduct towards us or who they are, but our love for them, how we see them, we see them in light of what God has done for us. I no longer see them for who they are. I see them for what God has done in me. Well, if you have known who they are and what they've done and what they said and the type of life they live or how they go about their life or what they're all about, you wouldn't think that about them, right? The reality is over here, right? If there's this like the voice of the Holy Spirit, right? Speaking the truth of God into our hearts. I loved you when you were worse than that. And so we begin to treat other people not in light of who they are, but in the light of who God and what God has done in me. The extent and magnitude for which Jesus Christ himself gave, gave himself up for me is now the basis for which I love others with complete abandon for myself in surrender of all things that have been done to me or for me or through me or in me, knowing that it is in the grace of God that I am transformed to love people fully. We are eager to forgive. We are eager to show compassion. We are spiritually inclined to see through the way that they present themselves in our lives. In short, we become more loving. We become people who are marked by 1 Corinthians 13. Not a passage that's read primarily at weddings, right? But as a passage that informs who we are as people who follow Jesus. We are more patient, we are more kind. We are not self-seeking. We are not envious. We are not rude. We are not easily angered. We, we are not keeping a record of wrongs. We are rejoicing with the truth. We are becoming more loving people because we're getting closer to Jesus and he's transforming our heart towards others. Listen. Here's where we're going to go next week. Okay? And I want you to mark this down, okay? Because the question is, is, well, I want to be transformed, but it ain't happening. Or it feels like it's not happening. <clears throat> Here's the main point for next week, okay? To be transformed, you must abide with Jesus. To experience transformation, you must abide. It comes from the words of Jesus himself, right? In John chapter 15. And what I'm asking you to, if you, if you, plan, if you plan to come back next week, or even if you don't, that 
that spend, spend your time in the Word this week in John chapter 15, specifically verses 1 through 17. Because our, um, because the, the, the converse to that thought, to be, to be transformed, we must abide with Jesus, is this. If you're not experiencing transformation in your life or in your relationship with Jesus, you may be disconnected from him. What Jesus is going to say in John chapter 15 is that when you remain connected to him as the vine, the true source of life, that fruit will be produced. But if you are cut off from the vine, then you will wither and die. Makes sense, right? Practically speaking. And so, and so the question here is now, what does it mean to abide? How do we abide in Jesus so that we can experience the source of life that comes from intimate connection and relationship with him? That's next week. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to be moved not by a Jesus of our own imagination or image, but Lord, we desire to be moved by you. The Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who sits now on the throne in heaven, author of all things, supreme above all things. Father, we want to experience the transformation of life in Jesus, a transformation that comes from abiding in him, remaining connected to the source of life, the vine. Father, would you, by your grace, speak the truth of your word into our hearts this week as we wrestle with John 15 and other passages to know truly what it means to abide in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through your spirit, through his spirit in your inner being, so that you may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with t- to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.